morning again. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 19. We'll be reading from verses 16 all the way to verse 26. That's uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 16 through verse 26. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. The word of the Lord says, And someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, but if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were astonished and said, Then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Let's pray. Father, we've come today to, to have you work in our lives. We know it's your will that we be conformed to the image of your Son. And that's not anything that uh, can be persuaded. That's not anything that... Uh, can be argued. Father, it's not anything that can be willed on our part. It's something that uh, through your spirit and through your word, working in our lives, we become less like ourselves and more like your son. I pray now that uh, your spirit would work in our minds and in our hearts and that we would put aside those things that are holding us back to become more like Christ. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> Have you uh, ever trusted somebody with, uh, with something? Uh, you put your trust in a product or in a person, hoping that you would have certain uh, turnout, but just to find out that with the pass of time, that uh, rather than being able to trust that person or that thing, that product, uh, it, it was a disappointment. Uh, maybe you're thinking about a, um, a, a car that you bought, and you said, this is going to be the last car that I ever buy. It's going to be fantastic. And a month afterwards, you're, you have different thoughts about that car, right? You're, you're thinking different things about it. Uh, you might be thinking about a relationship that maybe at the moment was uh, very nice, but then with the passage of time has become something else. Um, by... Uh, Parents wanted to build a home there in Venezuela. We had a lot of people 
coming in and out. Uh, we were hosting a lot of people, so they were having certain needs in this home and uh, got the plans all drawn up and they um, hired this man, uh, this builder, to build this home. He said he was a Christian. We put our faith in him and gave him the money and three months later, all we had was the foundation. That's it. Uh, nothing else. And we couldn't find the builder. He was gone. We had put our trust that uh, we were going to have this home, and um, uh, it just didn't turn out that way. We <laughs> ended up having other people come and build this home. But, but sometimes we put our trust in things just to find out that our trust, our faith, has been misplaced. Now, as we're looking through this text here in chapter 19, we can't divorce it. We can't separate it from chapter 18, where there's this purity and unity. This tension that um, uh, is the church has been struggling with for a while. Uh, Jesus wants there to be a pure church, but also a unified church. And uh, for us as humans, we tend to lean one way or the other. Uh, as we think about this aspect of unity and, and purity, some things have been kind of different for the disciples. Some things that they didn't anticipate. Uh, for example, uh, Jesus' openness to children into the kingdom. They, they didn't anticipate that. They thought it would be a little bit different. Now, as we look at this, the first thing that we're going to look at is, look, a rich young man. Look, a rich young man. Now, from our text, I want you to notice that Matthew is very careful not to tell who exactly this person is. In fact, in verse 16, it just says, someone, someone came to him. We don't know who that someone is. We don't know male, female. We don't know anything about this person other than that there's this individual that comes up to Jesus and he says, teacher. Now, it's an interesting word that he uses to address Jesus because there are several words you can use to address a teacher like rabbi. And rabbi has a certain implication that you are following his teaching, that there's a personal connection there. But he doesn't use rabbi here. He uses teacher, which uh, shows him some respect, but kind of keeps him at a distance. It shows him that he has certain authority, but it kind of puts him at a distance. And what he wants to know is, what good thing shall I do that I may obtain eternal life? He understands that people are going to live eternally, and he wants to know how can it be obtained uh, as if it were a product, as if it were something that you could go buy. What must I do to obtain it? Uh, we can go out and purchase airline tickets and we obtain the ticket. He wants to know what exactly can be done, what good thing can be done. Uh, verse 17, he says, uh, Jesus answers him, and he says, Why are you asking me about what is good? Why are you asking me about what is good? Why? Why are you coming to me? Uh, when we look at this aspect of good, Jesus says there's only one who is good, and that, that's God, right? There's only one good. Now, in this aspect of one is good, we have to define good. On what level is Jesus good to give this answer? Uh, we may say that this screwdriver is very good, assuming that we're trying to uh, screw or unscrew a certain type of uh, screw, right? Either a star or flat, whatever. Uh, but it doesn't work very good for hammering stuff. Well, it doesn't. Like 
seen people use screwdrivers as hammers, but it doesn't tend to work very well. Uh, so on what level is Jesus good to give him information about eternal life? On some aspect, this guy has uh, seen what Jesus has done. He, he's heard what he's been teaching. And on some level, he realizes that he has some type of information that will be beneficial for having eternal life. Jesus says that there's only one who is good. And this is a very important statement because Jesus is not saying that God will be good or he has the potential of being good or he has been good in the past, but rather that God is in the state of goodness. He's always good. This is a present aspect of God. Now, when we think about this aspect of God being good, it kind of ends up putting two things that's kind of interesting to look at. Those things that fall in line with the character and the person of God are therefore good. He's a good God. Therefore, those things that are related to his character and to his person, those things are also good. Which means that the contrary is also true, that those things that do not fall in line with the character and the person of God, those things are not good. It has very little to do with, with feelings about the thing. Well, I feel this is good. It doesn't matter how we feel. What matters is, is it in line with the person and the character of God? That, that's the only thing that matters, if something is good. Furthermore, what Jesus is telling this guy is that we don't determine goodness on our own. Goodness is apart from God. And if we do not go to God to find out what is good, we might say, well, this is good. And God would say, no, that's not good at all. And we might say, well, this is very bad. And God would say, no, that, that's very good. We don't have the capacity in ourselves to determine that. Although we try to be very autonomous and say that we can decide what is good and what is bad. But it's God who decides. And as individuals, we are to submit ourselves to what God dictates as good and bad. Now, when we think about this goodness of God, you might be struggling a little bit with this idea because you might say, okay, God is good, but that doesn't really correlate, doesn't mesh well with the experience I'm having right now. I'm going through a situation. I'm going through a moment in my life where uh, I'm not seeing that God is good. And if he's good, then he must not be all powerful. Because maybe he has good intentions, but he doesn't have the power to stop whatever is going on in my life. And, and that might be your experience today. Uh, this is Jesus saying that God is good. What happens when Jesus says that God is good, but our experience seems to dictate something contrary? What do we do? Well, the obvious thing to do is to change the scriptures, right? No. No. See, if my experience isn't uh, going along with what scripture says, it means I need to reevaluate my experience. My outlook on life needs to change to match what is happening in the scriptures. Now we know that God is good and we know from other texts like Psalm 139 that God is all powerful. So therefore, if I'm going through an experience that is saying maybe God is not good, I have to change and look at it from God's perspective rather than my perspective. So he says that only one is good and furthermore he says he gives a conditional sentence. Uh, uh, but if you wish to enter 
into life. Notice that he says enter. The guy is looking for how to obtain. And uh, rather than telling him how to obtain, Jesus ends up clarifying his question a little bit for him and says that uh, eternal life is something you enter. Uh, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, you end up entering into a relationship with God. It's a moment that happens at the moment of faith when you trust what Jesus Christ did on the cross is the only thing that can save you. But it is a relationship that you're developing. And at that moment you are saved, but you don't get totally sanctified at that moment. You don't get totally glorified. It's not something that you obtain. It's a life of faith. And so he says you enter into life. He says keep the commandments. That seems pretty straightforward. It's a conditional thing. You want eternal life? Keep the commandments. He, uh, this, this person, we don't know who he is. Matthew is delaying a little bit, giving us uh, uh, specifics about this guy. He says, then he said to him, which ones? Now, it's a very important question to ask. If we look at the law of God, it has 613 laws. 613. If we look at what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, how they added laws upon laws to be able to protect the law of God, uh, they were thousands, thousands of laws. So to clarify, which, which laws are you talking about specifically am I supposed to follow, is a very important question. Uh, Jesus replies back, as we see, and uh, he says, uh, you shall not commit murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus ends up referencing the law, the, the Ten Commandments, referencing Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 through 16. And he ends up mentioning specifically the commandments 6, 7, 8, 9, 5, and 10. Uh, some people sometimes uh, point out the fact that I cannot say the Ten Commandments in order. And I point out, well, Jesus didn't either. No, just kidding, I don't do that. Um, uh, he points these out, and these are specifically things that you see exterior, right? These are things that you can tell by somebody. If they murder somebody, you would see the body there. A person who is dishonoring mother and father, you would see them yelling and, and not taking care of. Uh, these are certain external things that, uh, that can be seen. And we look at this reply of, of the young man. His reply is found in verse 22. But when the young man heard the statement, sorry, I jumped too far. Verse 20, the young man said to him, all these things I have kept. Now Matthew introduces a little bit more information about him. First, he's just someone. Now we find out that he's a young man. So it's giving us now a better picture of this guy. And he's saying that all these things I have kept. Now, this idea of keeping uh, is this idea of uh, working uh, to produce uh, careful measures. You're, you're working very specifically to ensure that something's going to come about. Uh, you could think about somebody who makes furniture, how they measure and measure to ensure that the product that they are building will come out specifically how they, how they have designed it. And he's saying that he has done this. He has kept it. Now, uh, this could be maybe a little bit of arrogance. Is this youthful arrogance that he's doing here? To, to assume that he has uh, followed these laws perfectly? Uh, 
Uh, is this this youthful arrogance? Or maybe it's something else. Maybe he actually believes that he has followed these laws, that he is just totally following the laws of God. Uh, and you say, well, no one is, is, is that arrogant to actually believe this. And I say, oh, yes, it is. I've talked to people all the time. I ask them how uh, they think they're going to get into heaven. What do they tell me? Oh, they think that uh, their good works are somehow going to allow them into heaven. That when God, uh, when they're there before God, they'll say, look at all the good things I did. And therefore, they're supposed to be allowed into heaven. So it might not just be youthful arrogance. He might have deceived himself into thinking that he's actually obeying these laws. People still do this all the time. But even in obeying these laws, in keeping these commandments, uh, verse 20 says, What am I still lacking? There's an aspect in his life that he has realized that he has done all these things. He is working and doing and doing all these good things. And yet somehow he doesn't feel like he has reached what God would want for him to have eternal life. There is still something that is lacking for him to do. He, he feels that he's doing a lot, probably more than everyone else around him. But there is something still lacking in his life to really for him feel secure that he has eternal life. What am I lacking? What, what am I failing to reach? What am I missing out on? Is what he's saying. I've kept all these things. Verse 21 says, Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete. This word complete also has this idea of being perfect. And uh, it, it's created a little bit of a problem in church history. What in the world does it mean to be complete? And since the church fathers, there's been kind of this idea of two, two different types of Christians. The first type of Christian, and this is the highest level of Christian, is the complete Christian, is what they would say. These are the ones who take this, this vow of poverty. They're the ones who, who don't entertain things so mundane as, as marriage and children and careers and so forth. They, they don't get involved in those type of things. They dedicate themselves solely unto the Lord and feeding the poor. Uh, where do they get money to feed the poor? I have no idea, but that's what they do. That's how they live. So this is the complete Christian. And then the second, uh, and you say, well, you said highest, and, and now I'm saying second. Uh, how can there be a highest? Because well, second carries a whole uh, array of different types of Christians, all different levels of Christians. And, and these are the people who are professing Christ, but uh, they're involved with family. They, they got a family. They have a, a career. They have a job. They, they do these things, and therefore they don't really minister per se. And this is uh, this idea that there's these two levels of Christians, the ones who are complete and the ones who are incomplete. This way of understanding completeness of what Jesus is telling him here, I think uh, really creates a, a, a false dichotomy, a, a false view of, of these two extremes. The idea of completeness is that all Christians are called to be complete, called to be conformed to the image of Christ. Uh, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, you'll see, um, you can even see it on the screen. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. Well, what, is it, what does that mean? 
He's writing to the church in Rome. Who is he talking to? Just to the leadership? They're the only ones who are supposed to be conformed to the image of the Son? No, the whole church is. All individuals are supposed to be conformed to the image of the Son. Not only that, but we look at uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And he writes in Philippians 1, 6, For I am confident of this thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus. In other words, uh, the will is to conform you to the image of the Son, and he who started that work will continue to work it. It's not like he's going to get to a point where he gets tired and says, I can't do this anymore. I didn't realize he was going to be so hard-headed. I didn't think she would be so stubborn. I just give up. He doesn't do that. He who began the work will continue. So there's not complete Christians and incomplete Christians. There are only Christians who are becoming conformed to the image of the Son, who the Son is working through to do that work. So as we come back to here, he's talking about complete. He's talking about becoming saved. And he says that go, he gives them four, four things. So there's four imperatives here. The first one is go. Now when we look at go, uh, he, he's telling them to depart from where he's at. Go. How much time will that take? Well, it doesn't take very long to just depart from somewhere, right? So go. The second imperative is sell your possessions. Now we, we don't know very much at this point how many possessions he has. We know that someone came to Jesus. We know further on in verse 20 that he's a young man. Uh, but now it's saying, go sell your possessions. And the way that Matthew is describing this, we just don't know exactly how many possessions he has. Uh, how much is he going to sell? I mean, this guy could just have a fishbowl and a fish, right? And he goes and sells it. Maybe he has a fishbowl and a fish and a bike. And he's going to sell it. How long will it take to do that? That might be something rather quick. He says, sell your possessions. And the next thing is give to the poor. Now that might take a little bit longer. Assuming he's got a fishbowl and a fish and a bite. What might take longer is to go find the poor people to give it to. Uh, where would you go? Well, you might have to walk down to 1960 and 249. Sometimes there's people there that are begging for, so what do you got? You got 10 bucks for a fishbowl and a bike? You go and you give it. So that, maybe it takes half a day to walk all the way down to 1960 and 249, right? Uh, we're talking about uh, time here in these imperatives things that we could probably calculate how long this will take. How long will this take of me? How long will I be involved in this process? And he says there, furthermore, is that giving it to the poor, you will have treasure in heaven. Now these are, uh, this is the word of God saying this. And furthermore, it points to something future. Points to something uh, that will happen. You give away now, and when you get to heaven, you'll have this treasure. Now, we're, we're not very good at anticipating this, of waiting, right? We, we don't like this idea of investing for, for a future. Uh, there was a study done a while back, and uh, they uh, had a child. They put him in a room, and uh, they put a cookie before him. You guys heard the story, right? Uh, they told him, if you wait five minutes, I'll give you a second cookie, and you can eat both cookies. Or you can just have this one cookie. The vast majority of the children that did the study ate the first cookie, didn't get a second one. Why? Because waiting, anticipating for something in the future was just not for them. And many of us think about this and say, 
I, I don't want treasure in heaven. What am I going to do with it? There's no stores. I'm not going to go to a heavenly mall and shop. What, what am I going to do with treasures in heaven? I want to have the house now. I want to have the car now. I want the career now. And even though he's saying this, and this is something good and positive, we don't tend to think about the future. He said, no, I'd rather have it right now. He says, furthermore, he says, have treasure in heaven come. And there's the fourth imperative, follow me. Now, how long does it take? How long does it take to, uh, to go? Well, that doesn't take very long. How, how long does it take to sell? Well, selling, depending on what you have, can be rather quick. Uh, we can anticipate. We can see our possessions being sold off and money received. Uh, giving, giving, I'm sure, will be rather quickly, too. There's always need. How long does it take to come after Jesus? How long does it take to follow after him? When does that stop? Furthermore, what does the road look like? Is it a big highway or is it a little path? Is it walking and following him into comfort or where there will be difficulty there? See, there, it leaves things very ambiguous in this text. What, what do you mean, follow you? Where are we going to go? Where are we going to sleep? We look at the go, sell, and give. And those can, we can anticipate how long that will take. But the come and follow is kind of hard. Now, when we look at coming and following him, it, it ends up being more than just walking behind him. It's owning his desires. Uh, Christ has this desire to be holy, loving, hating sin. Therefore, if we're going to follow Christ, we're going to be holy, loving, and hating sin too. I mean, it'd be kind of impossible to think that I'm going to uh, follow after Jesus, but I'm not going to have his desires. I mean, that'd be kind of absurd, right? Furthermore, it says uh, coming after him would also be involved with obeying his mission. So owning his desires, but also obeying his mission. And he came to glorify the Father. So our mission should be to live every day glorifying God. Now, here's the four-step process. The young man wants to know how to be complete. Jesus lays it out, puts it in a book. I mean, it, you could think that it would be a bestseller, right? It'd be in every airport. Four steps to being complete. It'd go off the shelves immediately, right? Unfortunately, we see that this man has a different reaction. Verse uh, 22 says, But when the young man heard this statement, he went away grieving. Grieving? He identified Jesus as being someone good, good for the purpose of finding out information of how to have eternal life. On some level, he's identified him as being the person to go to, to find out how what is still lacking in his life. Jesus gives him the information, and you would think at this point he would just be rejoicing. Hot dog, I know what I'm lacking. I'm so joyful, I'm so happy, I'm so hopeful, you would think. That that would be his reaction, but his reaction is that he's grieving. And we know why. It says there at the end of the verse, for he was one who owned much property. He goes away because he owned much property. Now, I don't like getting into a bunch of the details of, um, of Greek grammar. The New Testament was written in Greek. 
But here there's something very important to point out. Most of the time, it, when we're talking about things that happened in the past, past tense type uh, stories and so forth, there's a certain tense that is used, and it indicates something happened in the past. It's just something happened back then. And there's not much else to say other than it happened back then. There's another tense, and this tense happens rather rarely. In fact, when it happens, it, it's so rare that it happens that it kind of highlights the word and kind of makes the reader just look at it and see what in the world is going on here. And it has this idea of not only that it happened in the past, but up to that point, it's still happening. I mean, obviously, it's not happening from now because we're 2,000 years afterwards, but from the point of writing, it's still occurring. And, and that's this tense right here, uh, he was. He was one who owned much property. See, his grieving, he grieved about the fact, but he didn't do anything about it. He, he felt sorry for what he heard, but he didn't go and sell. He had the property, and he continued having the property. He found out what his problem was, what the idol of his heart was, but he continued having it. He didn't cease. It wasn't just a past thing, and then he moved into something new. Rather, it was a continuous thing. He had the properties. He continued having the properties. What we see about Jesus here is that Jesus went after his idol. He went after his idol. This man, he had, he had faith. He had a tremendous amount of faith. And he had morality. He had money. I, I bet if that guy walked into this building here, at the very least, we'd make him a deacon. At the very least. Might make him an elder. I might lose my job. Might make him a pastor. But why? The guy has morality. Since his youth, he's been following the law. He's been an example to the community. Not only that, but the guy has money. And on some certain level, we think that money and the blessing of God go together. Therefore, the more money you have, the more blessing of God you have. So this is a guy who's really blessed of the Lord. But unfortunately, the man has a misplaced faith. He's very moral, but he has a misplaced faith. See, he saw Jesus, he heard the invitation that Jesus had, but Jesus did not secure him like his possessions did. He looked at Jesus, what Jesus was offering, he looked at his possessions, and he said, I can find more security in what I have than being with Jesus. Not only that, but he looked at Jesus and he looked at his possessions and he realized that his possessions satisfied him more than Jesus. It did. He found more satisfaction in the things that he possessed than in following after Jesus. His morality and his possessions were his faith. It's where his faith was placed. I mean, this guy was a stellar guy, but he had a misplaced faith. It was in things and morality rather than in Jesus. Jesus went straight to his heart and exposed what was going on in his heart. Now, we're talking about idols of the heart. We're not just talking about finances here. Because you might say, I don't really care about finances. In fact, you might have lived through an experience where at one time you had finances, you lost it all, now you have some finances again, and it really doesn't bother you at all. In fact, you could lose it again and you would care less. But we all have certain idols in our heart. 
And the way to test to see what our idol is, is to find out, to ask the question, what am I not willing to give up to follow after Christ? At this point, you're probably trying to spiritualize that thing. It's a blessing of the Lord. God gave this to me. I can't just let it go. I can't do that. What's the one thing you're not willing to give up to follow after Christ? And that's your idol. And, and if you would have walked up to Jesus, that's where he would have touched. And that's where he would have pointed at. Are you willing to give that up and follow after me? The second thing to notice is that Jesus did not coddle him. Now, can you imagine? Uh, I, the way you imagine this is this guy is leaving grieved. And uh, if this would have happened in our church, what we would have done? No, 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 I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. No, you don't have to get rid of anything. In fact, we're going to give you some stuff. Just stay with us. Come on, well, come on. Don't leave. And we'd, we'd coddle him, right? We wouldn't want to mess out with this guy. I mean, this guy is young, he's rich, he's moral. We'd want to give him a great seat here. That's not what Jesus does. He doesn't even seem to call him back. He doesn't even seem to address him again. The guy takes off grieving and he just leaves him in his grief. I think that's important as we think about this tension between purity and unity. Sometimes we're willing to have unity without the purity. And we sometimes bend rules to accommodate sinfulness when Jesus allows that sinfulness to just leave. He doesn't go after him, chasing. please, just come back. Judas, give him the money. Give him the money, Judas. He doesn't do that. The guy takes off, and that's it. We don't know anything else about him. Jesus doesn't coddle him. Now, we see that the disciples are perplexed. We see the perplexed disciples. Uh, you can imagine, just, I mean, just imagine the facial expressions on the disciples. Uh, their mouths must have been hanging open. And the reason I say that is because Jesus just jumps right into verse 23. He says, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they say, verse 25, finally they begin to speak. It says, when the disciples heard this, they were astonished. So they must have had this facial expression like, what are you doing? You invite the kids to come and you spend time with kids. Here's this, this rich young guy and you just let him walk away. What are you doing? What type of kingdom is this? You can imagine how perplexed the disciples are. They're speechless. Jesus just jumps in and starts telling them some stuff. And he says, it's, it, it's hard. It's hard when a person has an idol to give up that idol. It, it, it's very difficult. In fact, um, it, it usually doesn't happen. He says, uh, they, they say, they're so astonished, they say, then who can be saved? And that's where Jesus replies with, and looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. You cannot save yourself. There's no way that you can save yourself. In fact, if God had not taken the first step for your salvation, you wouldn't be saved at all. There's nothing you can do on your part. But with God, all things are possible. How in the world do you get a camel through the eye of a needle? 
Can you do it? Well, sure, you can do it. But it's not going to be in the same condition on the other side. See, you're going to have to kill the camera and piece by piece feed it through the needle. And that's where it becomes very difficult for the person with an idol. Because somehow they want to come to that eye of the needle with their idols, and on the other side, they want to still be intact. And God says, no. You're going to have to mortify. You're going to have to get rid of those idols and piece by piece go through, or else you don't go through at all. Many times we think, well, this is impossible. With God, things, all things are possible. Now, as we look at this, we have to say, we have to come to this conclusion, is God really good? To take us apart piece by piece and feed us through the, the eye of the needle. And that's where it comes back to our statement where he says only one is good. See, God is allowing difficulties in your life to conform you to the image of, your, of his son. He is allowing stress and heartache and sadness and joy and comfort and love. He's allowing all things in your life to conform you to the image of his son. And piece by piece, feeding you through the aisle of A proper place faith abandons idols and follows Christ in a childlike manner. You remember in John chapter 6, there was a multitude that was following Jesus and, and they were hungry. And Jesus has compassion for them and he wants to feed them. Andrew brings a child that has some bread and some fish. And, and interestingly enough, the child just gives the meal over to Jesus. What would an adult do? What are you going to do with a meal? What am I supposed to eat if I give you my meal? What am I going to eat? See, the child doesn't seem to look forward to the future. He just gives what he has to Jesus. And in this manner is how the kingdom of heaven is there's an abandonment of what you have to the disposition of Christ. And very few adults will do that. Give up my prestige. Give up my possessions. Follow, follow him where? I don't know what's over there. I don't know what language they speak over there. No, I'm comfortable here. To do this type of thing, it requires faith. And first of all, it would be requiring a faith of salvation. And maybe you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Maybe you're looking at this and about giving and following Christ, and you say, this is crazy. And it's probably because you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Somehow on your goodness, or maybe on, on some knowledge of God, or maybe some type of information, you think that somehow you're okay with God, but really you have God's wrath upon you. And it's not until you confess your sin and put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross to save you, that's the only thing that can save you of your sins. Until you do that, you're not saved. For others who are saved, this requires a continually putting to death idols, destroying them. See, they creep up. You think you've destroyed an idol and all of a sudden you get a grandkid. You're like, oh my goodness, I'm staying here the rest of my life. Or you get a job promotion. 
This must be of the Lord. Or something else happens and idols creep up in your heart. It takes a step of faith to continually bash and destroy those idols from your life. Let's pray. Father, as we start to reflect on this passage, and we start thinking about having these steps of faith, we have to have a childlike faith and follow after Christ. Father, I pray if someone here has never accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, that today can be the day of salvation. Father, I pray for those who are saved. Maybe they haven't been caring about the fact that idols have been spurring up in their, in their life. Father, I pray that we would bash those, destroy them, and live for you. In Jesus' name I pray.